Welcome back to Entertainment Weekly. I'm Darren Franich. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a guy sitting across from me. EW's Jeff Jensen. You know, I really thought that you were going to go for... I look forward to your introductions of me. They really kind of make my week. And um, I thought you were going to go for either calling in from the Batcave or from the Fortress of Solitude. So I'm... But that one was good. That one was good. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Are you that. saying I was pretty basic, Jeff? Is that what you're saying? No, I thought that was... No, 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 no. In fact... Checking in from Mixie Zip Tilk's headquarters in the fifth dimension. It's Earth 2's Jeff Jeff. Oh, oh, oh that's that? very, very, that very high concept. No, I actually think that you went in a, in a, in a creative, unusual direction. Uh-huh. I, th- I was kind of like... Uh, uh, I, I, I think I went for the most basic version. Uh, we're both feeling very pretty, clever, Darren. We're both feeling pretty basic right now, Jeff. But uh, we're also what an exciting moment in time because uh, Batman v Superman is a mere two and a half to three weeks away. Is that a Supreme the, Court case? Uh, yes, Batman v Superman. Uh, you know, it, it's tragic actually because you know Scalia, as we all know, yeah. was an originalist when it came to Batman v Superman. Scalia is, was was probably the one guy who wished Batman still used guns to shoot people. Like in the very first, wasn't yes. it in like the very first Batman comic books in Detective Comics when he was still just like shooting guns? At, That's at right. He, and everything. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. Scalia. But uh, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice is in fact a movie that is coming out in theaters in a few weeks. It is also the subject of Entertainment Weekly's covers. You can get both of them this week. There's one with Batman, one with Superman. Disappointingly, not one with Don. I was hoping that Don was going to be on the cover. Just just like a lovely shot of Don sort of rising over the horizon. <laughs> with maybe with maybe just like a shadowy image of, of Lady Justice with her scales, sort of doing a, a slightly more abstract thing. Uh, our own Anthony Bresdikin did a great piece uh, talking about the movie. There's a lot to... This is a really full... There's a lot to dive into with this movie. Absolutely. Um, where where do, where do you stand right now as we, with each passing day, the the drum beats get louder and louder for this film? Um, how, do you, uh, do, uh, how do you kind of feel about it as we embark on this final leg of the, of the pre-Batman v Superman journey? I have really uh, mixed feelings about it. Um, it, it feels to me like there's been a lot of mixed buzz about this film leading up to its release. Uh, a lot of skepticism about its quality based on the very polarizing to negative uh, feelings about Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, um, our ever-shifting attitudes about Ben Affleck. Um, it seems that, you know, uh, the the afterglow of his Argo resurrection has faded, and now we're back to this place where we're undecided now. We're, we're, we're uh, indifferent or ambivalent or confused again well, about no, Ben Affleck. Here's what happened, Jeff, is that as so often happens, Earth 2 Ben Affleck made a reappearance <laughs> after years of being trapped in the negative zone. He, he is suddenly back. Yeah, it is, it or is, Bizarro Ben Affleck. It, it is just interesting that, you know, just thinking about his career arc, I'm not sure you can... There are people who have uh, gone from being actors to successful directors, and there are people who've gone from being actors to Oscar-winning directors, and there are people who've, who've, whose films have, have won Best Picture. I'm not sure you can really get any better than Hollywood giving your film Best Picture 
almost as an admission that they made a mistake by mm. not nominating you for best director. Right, right, you right, know, right. Like, you know what a what what a true career moment for someone who you know five to six years previous to Argo, his career was in a very different place. That was a real high point. And as you point out, almost immediately from that high point, the announcement came that he would be playing Batman in Batman v Superman. It's which, amazing how like the internet just immediately reacted with hostility what? toward that announcement. Now, now uh, why do you think that is? Like as we kind of look back on that for almost for almost like two and a half years later like like do you think was the hostility was was it was it all because of daredevil was it all because of you know because the dark knight and christian bale are held in such high regard or was it some combination of, of all those things i just think that we have this uh we have a bad attitude about ben affleck movie star ben affleck leading man i think that we still have lingering doubts about whether or not he really is a great actor now well, well clearly you haven't seen runner runner <laughs> Apparently not, right? I have not. Um, But I I think that the story about Ben Affleck that we all fell in love with, with Argo, was this sort of fallen celebrity actor um, uh, resurrecting himself and and, and reconstructing, reinventing himself around maybe some more sort of offbeat, humbler parts. But as a director, there seems to be this sense that he's very smart and has a great deal of integrity as a producer and as a storyteller. But um, as a big old movie star in our big old movie franchises, um, there definitely seems to be some 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 pushback. Yeah. So there's that. that skepticism. Uh, there's also, of course, the skepticism around Zack Snyder, who I, I think we've talked about him a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about him much more once we see the movie. He is a person who holds a really interesting place in popular culture. On one hand, there's that quality to him where he has. It's a bit of the J.J. Abrams thing where he's the kid who's grown up and now he has all the toys. Like, you know, yeah. if you were someone like me who was growing up at a time when things like Watchmen and Frank Miller comic books were so central to your experience, but also so central to the experience in a way where you were like, ugh, like, nobody else really cares about this besides me and maybe one or two of my friends. Here's a guy who's now made a lot of those projects into million dollar movies that have been received somewhat strangely but the, the mere fact that they were made is, is kind of interesting uh, and now yeah, yeah. Oh, I, would, I would just say yeah I mean like he's he's definitely a, a controversial figure in film culture in general right he doesn't have a lot of partisan supporters among critics who love to talk about directors mm-hmm. um, and among comic book fans among superhero fans yeah he made a Man of Steel movie that made uh, quite a bit of money, although apparently now not as much as Deadpool. It's amazing to think that Deadpool out, has now outgrossed Man of Steel, um, even though that probably Zack Snyder presages the existence of something like De- Deadpool, you know? Um, but yeah, like his conceptualization, his vision of Superman um, and his his philosophy toward making him relevant to 21st century post 9-11 culture definitely controversial Mm -hmm. um and not widely beloved Mm -hmm. and we could debate the merits of that and then apart from that i feel like i could defend the merit i can't defend the execution um (laughs) but i could defend the merit but even then like you know for a lot of people that was not the superman they wanted to see and so yeah we, we we get this thing and i think the other thing that is like uh that the the that that makes us sort of like yeah, how do we feel about this movie this sort of like uh, uh, uncertainty about the movie is that the the huge ambitions 
that are resting on it because this is not just a um, a peculiar Man of Steel sequel. This is not just a Batman reboot with Ben Affleck and a new actor. This is an attempt by DC Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers through DC Entertainment, to launch a whole Marvel-style movie universe with its own, you know, DC superhero characters. And, and it's funny because you know the the comparison point, of course, the easy one is uh, the Marvel Studios universe. Uh, but what I think is interesting in a lot of ways and maybe kind of frustrating for some people is that with Marvel Studios, as strange as it seems now, there was the slow gradual build. You right. Know, like after Iron Man, they announced, okay, well, you know, Iron Man 2 is coming. You know, at a certain point they said, all right, well, now we'll be doing Captain America and Thor and the Avengers, which at that point was seen as being a really crazy, like, whoa, wait a second. Like, you're going to have two spinoffs and then a group spinoff? Like, that's a really ambitious thing that no one's ever done before. And I, I'm sure I was one of the many people who was like, there's no way this will possibly work. And what's interesting is that now we have that framework and other places have tried copying it to, to varying degrees of success, but not quite with the same breadth. I'm not sure there's any other studio universe yet that encompasses, you know, with Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and now Ant-Man and more franchises coming. That is a full universe unto itself. It feels like this somehow is DC. In one single movie, they are trying to launch all of those things right. at once. We have Wonder Woman is joining, is in this cast. Her her movie is already being filmed. Um, in the piece, uh, Anthony kind of talks about how we may see some Aquaman, we may see some Flash, or, or rather, we will see them. It's unclear to what extent we will see them. All those people are going to be in the Justice League movie, which starts filming next month. So there's, there's a lot of kind of stuff writing on this one movie. Right. I mean, if you think about what Marvel did compared to what DC DC is doing now, but like, yeah, Marvel, when they launched its grand plans, there were grand plans. They had ambitions, but they earned it with the strategy that that they had in place. It it, 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 it it was all about winning our trust, right? I mean, it wasn't about making us buy in from the beginning, the idea of the Avengers or of a whole universe. It was like, we're going to make an Iron Man movie and we're going to make that work. Now we're gonna build on that by giving you a Thor movie and we're gonna make that work. And then we're gonna give you a Captain America movie and we're gonna make that work. We all liking this? Great. Like, now we're gonna give you the Avengers yeah, movie. We're gonna hand this to Joss Whedon and let him figure out how to make this <laughs> right. work. Right, <laughs> but, but as much as it was an execution of a corporate strategy, it was designed in such a way that they, they had to earn it every step of the way so that when we finally get the Avengers, well, we legitimately love these characters. I mean, we we come to that we came to that movie with a ton of goodwill and mounting faith that they could actually give us something really entertaining and 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 kind of special. With DC out of the you know you know building off of Man of Steel, yeah, it really is is like we're going to ram this thing down your throat and we're going to launch a major enterprise from the ground up really really fast and. You have absolutely no say on it. Like, you know, like we're not even going to wait to see if you like, you know, like any of the new characters. 
and all of the new casting that we're giving you, like, we're making it, and we're making more! It really feels like, I mean, it's funny, you know, I, th- I think it was, like, Joan Didion who once talked about it. I think it was Joan Didion, he said, clearly being the most pretentious <laughs> person of all time on this podcast, but I think she has, a, she has a piece where she talks a lot about, like, in Hollywood, it's really all about gambling, and it sort of weirdly makes sense that, you know, proximity-wise, we here in Los Angeles are so close to Las Vegas, a, a monument to literal gambling as opposed to here, where we've sort of, you know, commodified the gambling into a whole industry of like let's just throw money at this and, 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 and see if we make our money back and this to me it does feel like you know credit to Warner Brothers this feels like it is one of the biggest gambles in the history of movies it right. is not just you know a gun with the wind or a Titanic where it's like we are spending to whatever the equivalent of two hundred million of two hundred and fifty million dollars is, we're spending that on this movie in hopes that this movie makes that back. It is we are spending that much on this movie, and we are also in the process of spending probably as much on one or two other movies on the assumption that this movie will make people want to see ten more of these, which well, is fascinating. I, I like yeah, like it, it is a game. I mean, and and the um. The arrogance and the ballsiness of that gamble, because it's not just money and it's not just like huge franchise vision, but it is a director's vision and certain characterizations that have not necessarily been proven to be like something that the audience totally loves. I mean, one of the things reading um, Anthony's uh, pieces um, uh, about the uh, uh, reading Anthony's piece on the movie in this week's EW. I was, uh, it confirmed very explicitly that, hey, if you didn't like the articulation of Superman in Man of Steel as a, yeah, like, he's a flawed fascist. hero. That's a joke, actually. Right, right. But, he, he had as, problems, but fascism was not one of them. Right, right. That, he, that he's basically still a developing hero, a guy who doesn't really know yet how to be super like um this movie is doubling down on that characterization they're they're basically embracing everything that you hated about man of steel and uh and and bringing it into this film and saying yes like that's the core problem uh, of, of of this movie that we have a superman that unfortunately is reckless and not yet disciplined and is going to destroy a city and kill people um, and kill bad guys to save the day. Um, and uh, and, and uh, if you didn't like that Superman, um, they've created a story that both embraces that but also addresses it at the same time. So it's very clever but also really risky. Right, it's, it's it's very risky, and what I find interesting, I mean, we talked a lot about Man of Steel when it first came out. Jeff, listeners, we didn't hear it. If you want to hear two grown men yell at each other for an hour and a half, <laughs> I highly recommend you go back and find it in, in mid-2013. But I, I have been struck all along in the lead-up to Batman v Superman. The story they're constructing as far as how they're selling this movie, which is all salesmanship, and we'll see if the movie actually follows through on this, is essentially... Hey, you, uh, some lame blogger online who wrote a long thing about how the end of Man of Steel was all wrong, which I did. Um, <laughs> Batman is you in this movie. Batman also watched right. Man of Steel. He in, in the trailer, you see Bruce Wayne run into the destruction at the end of Man of Steel. He has major issues with it to a point that he seems to, basically because of what happened in, in Man of Steel, he will now attack Superman. That is very... 
interesting in a way that, you know, it, it reminds me of um, uh, in the first issue of Infinite Crisis, the th- two or three reboots ago uh, of DC Comics. I know that we've talked about this before, but it's literally just a long conversation between Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman about where did we go wrong. And, you know, that can be boring and that can be, you know, sort of too on the nose. But when the people having that conversation are Batman and Superman, there is an interesting subtext to that that you kind of can't help but be fascinated by. So that's 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 interesting. I, I think. Yeah, and I have to admit, like, um, I had a lot of doubts and not sure exactly how I felt about this movie, but reading Anthony's story, not to make it sound like we're completely promoting our product here, but it's actually a really good story. And I actually found myself intrigued by this depiction of Batman. I mean, this is, they're not giving us an origin story all over again. They're not building Batman from the ground up. Um, according to our reporting, if, if, you know, spoiler alert, if you don't really want to know anything about this movie, but what we reported this week is that the, the, the Bruce Wayne, the Batman that we find in this movie has been a Batman for a while. He's had a lot of adventures. He's had a lot of tangles with, uh, with villains. There is, a, uh, there is an implication that he once upon a time had a Robin and that that Robin died during a fight with the Joker. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that all of this stuff, this accumulation of experience in him ha- feeds into this very complicated, emotional, suspicious, angry view of Superman. In Superman, he sees like, you know... He, he, Batman considers himself something of a failure on on his war on crime, and that he's made a lot of mistakes, and it's gotten a lot of people hurt. And now he sees in Superman a a godlike analog to himself, who's making the same mistakes and making the same catastrophic blunders on a massive scale, and that gives him sort of this motivation to kind of go after him. And I, I, I find that interesting. I, I, I also find interesting this overlay, this this allegory that Snyder's going for. He kind of flicked at it hard in the first Man of Steel, and he seems to be like flicking at it even harder in this one about these these heroes, these icons, and Superman in particular as some kind of metaphor for God and our relationship to God or. Uh, whether we believe in him or where is he and all, all of our many, many different feelings and complicated feelings about God. And it's uh, that that could either be really interesting or really heavy-handed. Or, or really heavy-handed. And we're talking about Zack Snyder, who is not known for a light touch with this material. Um, <laughs> you know, what intrigues me is that, like, uh, I've been working on this idea, and the movie will prove or disprove it almost immediately, <laughs> that essentially what's happening here is what happened with Jaws 3 and Jaws 4, <laughs> okay. which, um, you know, fans of, of the Jaws franchise know that uh, Jaws 3 is a sequel to Jaws 2, wherein we follow uh, the children of uh, Sheriff Brody as they have now gone off to SeaWorld, which is sort of in the future or something like that, and Dennis Quaid is one of them. Awful, but really entertaining, and they have their adventures. Jaws for The Revenge, we again pick up with the sons of Sheriff Brody, but it is in a different it is a different sequel to Jaws 2. It is essentially like, what if instead of that happening after Jaws 2, this happens? Now, they got away with that because the um, the continuity issues in the Jaws franchise were not oft-remarked upon at the time. But <laughs> I'm very tickled by the idea that 
let's go back for a second to the end of The Dark Knight, mm. um, which I still think is like one of the best just endings of any superhero movie as far as somewhat remarkably like it seems to somehow return the character to where he's always been you, you know he's he is now batman and he will be fighting this fight and you know it is it is somehow both a completion of a character arc and also the beginning of it like you know you, you could almost see the end of the dark knight leading into any of the batman stories that i grew up with you know where we meet christian bale's batman after he's been fighting this fight for a while now dark knight rises begins with the implication that actually after that after that, Batman disappeared, which has always been a foundational thing that I think a lot of people get confused by, because in the Dark Knight saga, it seems to imply that actually Batman was only in operation for about a year or so, and then he disappeared for a while and then came back. And I've been teasing around the idea, because Dark Knight Rises is also sort of an old Batman movie. Not old in the sense of Christian Bale is obviously not an old person, but it's old in the sense of this is now the last Batman story, and when we first see him, he's even sort of a decrepit, kind of, you know, Dickensian, uh, Miss Havisham figure up <laughs> at his mansion. And I wonder if part of the intention with this was almost to kind of make Ben Affleck, this is a different sequel to The Dark Knight. Right. This is if... If you literally imagine, like, The Dark Knight happened for us uh, eight years ago now. If you imagine after eight years of, of fighting the good fight after The Dark Knight ended, and he's, he's been doing nothing but fighting crime since then, this is where we find him. And now, instead of in The Dark Knight Rises, where what happened was an elaborate terrorism allegory, now suddenly Superman is arriving on the scene. And, and I wonder, because I know Zack Snyder has talked a lot about how he still feels as if Christopher Nolan is very much the, the, the spiritual presence of the whole DC universe. You know, he's not necessarily directly involved in a lot of stuff now, but a lot of the stylistic cues still come from what he did with the Dark Knight trilogy. So I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that Ben Affleck with, with gray uh, dye in his hair is the best way to express the kind of old Batman notion. Um, but I, I, I'm intrigued. I, I, I want to ask though, Jeff, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in Anthony's piece, but... This is a movie that is jam-packed with stuff, and I think one of the interesting revelations that Anthony has really brought to, to us and to the world is that there is going to be a much longer version, even more jam-packed, because a lot of things seem to have been left on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, like, uh, w one of the things that really struck me and also immediately exhausted me uh, about this movie without even see having seen it yet is that the PG-13 theatrical cut is going to be two and a half hours long. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I'm already, like, want a nap. Um, uh, but, like, uh, that that seems like... That seems like a, a, a long movie, and, uh, and it will be challenging to both keep our interest without, like, uh, exhausting us with uh, sensational assault by the hour and a half mark, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I'm already dreading the 45-minute fight scene climax, you right. know? Right, yes, yes. Um, where, where, I mean, part of the problem, too, I think, and this is something we'll talk about more when we actually see it, um, the concern is that they will fight and then we'll actually just wind up, like, joining each other in the common fight against evil, which from which is Lex, you know, it is Lex Luthor. He is in this movie. He seems to be a key figure in their fight. So there is the concern that, you know... 
However boring some of the extended fight scenes might have been in Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies, at least in the end things did happen, and that, that was all going to a place where some characters would die, and you are kind of like, ah, Batman v Superman, uh, something tells me it's going to be, they're going to wind up not killing each other. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, there is there is something kind of phony at the heart of the conflict that is being hard marketed to us, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, they're going to fight, but they're but it's it's all about like uh there's a mistake being made here yes. right like they're reading each other wrong they've been grossly manipulated into fighting each other and considering themselves enemies like um yeah, th they're going to have to work you... hard to like like keep us invested in the stakes of that fight and and make those stakes interesting and make them about something more than just like fighting and fighting and fighting until they get to the understanding that they shouldn't be fighting. Because what you don't want to see is two hours of like two of the greatest heroes in history, two of the reigning myths in the American imagination, I would say, to say nothing of the global imagination. You don't want to see two hours of them being fooled by Lex Luthor. Like, like of them them essentially right. being duped. That yeah. That is some of the concern. And I hope, um, yeah, and I, I really hope that like, you know, but even within that, like I'm, I'm dreading. Like, I want to see a really smart fight, smart fights between them. Like <laughs> Superman being Superman, playing to his strengths, and Batman being Batman and playing to his strengths. And how do these two very different, opposite kind of like uh, like heroes with different kinds of tactics and different kinds of approaches, like how how might they? go at each other with their best game, well, you know? maybe this is a good moment to... Uh, uh, do you have any other kind of thoughts about Batman v Superman right now, Jeff? Well, I, I, I would say that, uh, that just to kind of, like, go back to and finish off that idea of, like, am I dreading or anticipating this movie? <laughs> one of the things that we were talking about this before we started is that, is that um, one of my sources of dread is that it was just going to be such an overstuffed, bloated movie, given everything that they're going to accomplish. Because, because, dear listener, this is not just a movie with Batman and Superman and Lex Luthor in it, um, but we also have. We're also going to be introducing Wonder Woman. Um, we're also going to be introducing Aquaman. We're also going to be uh, introducing the big screen version of The Flash. We're also going to be introducing Cyborg, which is an increasingly popular character that I only know as a member of the Titan Teen Titans from when I was a comic book reader, but I know is even more beloved through animation uh, in the 90s and into the early century here. Um, so there's a there's a lot of new character there's a lot of old characters being rebooted there's a lot of new characters being introduced though the Wonder Woman moment here is an incredibly important moment for DC Warner Brothers and also I think for pop culture and superhero culture in general as we kind of really hit hard the idea of like can we bring more female heroes to the screen beginning with one of the grand jewels uh, the brand of uh, grand brands and, and and all of that so yeah i mean like this is really important but uh, i i i'm trying to envision a movie that successfully accomplishes all of these character launches and i'm kind of thinking that Two, two and a half hours, suddenly that length both makes a lot of sense and may not be enough. And um, uh, I, I worry about a really overstuffed and therefore dissatisfying experience. Yeah, where don't, don't forget about four-time Oscar nominee Amy Adams, who is still in this movie as Lois Lane. One of, one of the most 
over. I mean, this is one of the one of the great actresses of our moment, and I hope she has a lot of stuff to do. But there is that weird quality of this movie where it's like you have Amy Adams, like fresh off of you know a whole run of incredible movies, and she's the like tenth lead in the movie. Right. I like. That. I think Michael Shannon also has uh, a cameo, and we're not even talking about apparently that there's another huge villain in this movie in the form of. A, a rebooted version, a new version of Doomsday. Oh, um, but so, yeah, so I was dreading a, a bloated kind of movie that has to accomplish a lot. But I will say, per Anthony's story this week, that he kind of revealed some things that uh, both uh, intrigue me about the business of how they're going to introduce things and introduce these new characters but also maybe alleviate a little bit of their, their strategy for for bloat alleviation if you will um this idea that uh that yeah we're, we're gonna see a lot of like iconic characters but they might be presented to us in the form of a vision um cryptic little offhanded beats uh yeah this is a movie about giving this this movie may be more about giving us teases of the DC universe, uh, DC universe view, uh, future, as opposed to really kind of formally introducing everyone. Yeah, uh, the the concern is, I think, uh, you don't want the Amazing Spider-Man two, which is actually, I think, a weirdly gorgeously made movie. Um, I don't know if you saw it, Jeff, but I mean, like, like there are, you know, like, like it was shot in 35 millimeter and it was shot on location in New York. I, I, I think it was the first Spider-Man movie that shot a lot in New York City proper. And there's just like, it just has a real texture that a lot of superhero movies don't have. Um, but it does not feel like a movie because every single part of it is a tease for something that Sony was planning for the elaborate sort of Spider-Man interconnected universe that w- that will never happen now. Right. You know, there are there are characters like you know B J Novak. I, I remember was playing um, Alistair Smee, who was the the Spider Slayer in the uh, Spider-Man comic books. Um, and he's he's just kind of in there for no more reason than to sort of be there as a setup for something. And that's it, that's kind of the concern with, with a movie like this, right? right? The, the 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 weird sort of we're doing a a multiple backdoor pilot inside of a, right. a single episode of the Batman that, Superman right. show, exactly. Yeah. So it'll, it'll 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 be interesting. I mean, for me, I, I I do go back to the sheer excess of this may be fun, almost accidentally. Maybe because we are in the year of excess superhero movies. I mean, this is coming out right before Captain America Civil War, which is essentially Captain America v. Iron Man. Um, It's coming out uh, not long before X-Men Apocalypse, which seems to have more X-Men than ever before. And I wonder if... It'll be interesting to see that we will soon be able to really analyze the strategies with which these different franchises use these movies right. to sort of tell these ongoing stories. So I think it'll be interesting to see. My own sense is like Batman v Superman will be the craziest of the bunch, which could be good crazy or or could be bad crazy. Yeah, and I and I think that in in, in what you just said there, it, you you point at. Another reason why I have really mixed feelings about this movie, which is that it, uh, I feel like we've been talking about this for a while now, and it never comes to pass, mostly because just when we, we, we feel this at its peak and its most agitated state, we get a really great movie that like prolongs the moment, which is superhero fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've, we've been 
talking about and predicting, we've been talking about superhero fatigue and we've been predicting some kind of peak superhero fatigue moment that would lead to uh, a, a, a markedly kind of depressed box office for these movies and some kind of clear sign to Hollywood that this moment is over. And just when we seem to be anticipating that, we get something that like recharges the battery. Cool, the most popular right. R-rated movie ever made. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> even go back to the Avengers. I mean, going into the Avengers, I remember the conversation was, this This is it, right? This is the peak expression of the superhero moment. And then it's all downhill. It, it, it's over, right? But no, like... The Avengers ends up being this like widely beloved, crowd-pleasing movie that completely recharges the Marvel Universe battery and motivates all of Hollywood to double down on these franchises. Mm -hmm. And now here we are, and probably what is surely a a a, a watershed bellwether moment for this mo for this movement, where you know, this year with so many of these movies and so many huge movies. And it begins with the utter triumph of Deadpool, which is only is 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 has opened Hollywood's eyes toward uh, a, a new way to make superhero movies and therefore prolong this movement, i.e. the R-rated kind of like superhero movie. Um, but it's kind of recharged our battery for it. And now we have these huge like yeah. these movies come along. And so yeah, like my dread going into Batman versus Superman is a little bit kind of like um, uh, enough, but you know, Deadpool's kind of like kicked me in the pants. And um, what I'm hearing about this movie now is kind of like encouraging me. And the tracking, by the way, we haven't talked about this, but going into this podcast, the, the reports are, are coming out about how this movie tr is tracking. This movie's tracking huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about maybe that this shatters all of the, uh, the the records for the biggest opening of all time. So um, clearly, the the, the the market is is huge for it. I, I find it interesting. And I've joked about this on Twitter before that the that the big opuses of the superhero of our superhero superhero year um, are in kind of some comical, maybe unintentional ways reflects our own uh, fatigue. With, with superhero movies. Like the superheroes are suspicious of each other and are fighting each other. Maybe not necessarily sure that a world full of superheroes is a really yes, good idea. Yes. Batman <laughs> is the human suspicious of superheroes. Iron Man is the human suspicious of superheroes. Weirdly, I mean, X-Men Apocalypse, like our X-Men are the relatively less crazy superheroes <laughs> right. suspicious of, of, of their fellow mutants. Like, these these yeah. movies reflect, like, in some ways, at least some, like, uh, like, uh, enough already with all the superheroes kind of attitude well, and, that exists out there. Just to kind of round out what you were saying, Jeff, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is now considered a failure, made $200 million domestically and a total of $700 million globally. And what's interesting to me is what what really we'll, we'll be monitoring is there's maybe no way Batman v Superman will be a flop. You know, there's right. like, I, I, I'm not sure we're going to see something in the way these things are made and marketed and the way the audience goes to see movies now. I'm not sure you're ever going to quite get another Green Lantern where it's just so completely, here's what it was made for, and it could not even hit that. It's really more, I think, a matter of if Batman v Superman comes out and doesn't make a billion dollars, doesn't make a billion dollars is by no means 
a, 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 a failure uh, euphemism, but I, I do wonder how that kind of changes the expectations of the movies that will all follow from it. And, you know, in fairness, I, I kind of just wonder, you know, we started off on such a high with superhero movies this year in terms of Deadpool being both something very different, I think, for a lot of people, and a huge success. And I guess on one hand, you sort of look forward and you say, well, we got a lot more superhero movies this year. People are going to be excited about that. And I wonder if instead if we'll see, if we'll be able to graph, like, movies that feel Deadpool-y in any way. Like, you know, something like Doctor Strange, which is just different. Not necessarily Deadpool-y. It's not R-rated and it's not necessarily in that tone. But I wonder if we'll see a focus on that. And in turn, I wonder, you know, will the melding of Batman and Superman be different enough that even if it, it is a movie made by someone who has made superhero movies before, made very much in the style of movies we've seen before, I wonder if that will be different enough for people. Um, but I, I do want to kind of talk a bit, Jeff, as we're looking forward, using our, uh, our, our always unfailingly accurate predictive <laughs> powers to figure out exactly what's going to happen. I, I do want to look backward as well. Um, one of the things that uh, you were saying about kind of uh, Batman and Superman and their kind of melding and the notion of Zack Snyder maybe possibly having a point with both of these characters, the idea that what Superman stands for and what Batman stands for can be oppositional things. Um, I thought it'd be fun to look back at the movies that these characters have produced over the last, uh, going on almost 40 years now since the first Superman movie, um, and trying to maybe, by looking at our favorites, figure out what these characters are about, at least on the big screen. Um, essentially, I, I wanted to say what our favorite Batman and Superman movies are. Um, what's your favorite? So, should we start with Superman or sure. start with Batman? Superman, what's your fave, Jeff? Um, I'm going to go in a very close race uh, with the very first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, uh, Superman the movie. Um, uh, the movie that taught us that you can believe a man can fly. And uh, there was something about that movie and its time and place that was really special. Um, I, I really wasn't, I love comics and I love superheroes, but I wasn't a huge superhero, uh, Superman fan, to be really honest. I, I love. Yeah, you were more like an X Men, right? Very much so. Yeah, I was a Marvel guy. And there was. I did like the George Reeves Superman serials. They aired on repeats and syndication um, uh, when I was growing up. Um, and I, there was something very clever about that. And I really liked George Reeves. Um, but Superman in general, I, I, I never liked the visual of Superman. Never liked the, 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 the costume. I never liked his just complete righteousness and goodness. <laughs> That makes me sound awful, but I just. Well, this, this, but I, this, I, is, this I, is often said to be the main yeah, problem with I, Superman. I, yeah. I, I'm I'm typical of that critique of of Superman in the sense of like, um, I, how, how can I relate to this guy? Um, all that and I, all he does is remind me that I'm not as good as I can never be him. You know, there is that idea um, that has become. I, I hear more often about how, how does Superman inspire us? Like, how do we relate to Superman? Uh, Superman um, represents, uh, the, inspires us to be the best that we can be. And I've never really bought into that. Like, if a Superman was r real, um, I don't think that would be our relationship to Superman. I think that 
he wouldn't inspire us to be better. I think that he would uh, make us feel bad about what we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, wow, he would make us feel not very special Do at all. Do you think too, he seems to come from a totally different psychological, uh, like global mindset where he is a symbol who is entirely aspirational. There is no way yes. ever. There's no way ever in your life you could be as good as Superman. Like not just that you know you couldn't get heat, heat vision, but like you could not make the right decision every time the way that he does. And it feels to me as if, you know, on a grand scope, this this has happened gradually over the course of the last seventy plus years. But certainly with the baby boomers and Generation X and now the millennials, I think that. You know, we seem to like our symbols to hurt a little bit. We seem to like our, like, even even our kind of great symbolic characters, like Batman, who is as much of a symbol as Superman is, we seem to respond more to him because, you know, that because there, there's pain in his, you know, moral righteousness. Um, and I, I wonder if that's why... Superman just always seems to be a problem character. Um, and, and, and really why, in a way, you could argue some of the most interesting Superman work is done when people just take Superman-esque characters, like, you know, whether it's Miracle Man or... Um, I, I remember in, in Astro City, uh, there was the character who was kind of like the fake Superman who, like, literally just had no life of his own because all he was doing all day was just, like, saving people. And it, it essentially made him into this sort of, like, he was always on. And in yeah. the very first issue of Astro City, I, I think that, like, it said that, like, his one happy moment each day is when he sleeps for, like, six seconds or something like that in between stopping tidal waves and everything, which is a more interesting in a human way, take on the Superman character than I think anything you necessarily see from the Superman mainstream. Yeah, I mean, for me, Superman was always the wish-fulfillment fantasy that leaves you with only... Uh, that that He's the wish-fulfillment fantasy that leaves you with nothing but fantasy. He's That he leaves you with, with nothing but um, this can never be real I mean he can only exist in this world there is that notion that I think is often uh, ascribed to Tolkien the idea of like um, that uh, that the the best kind of fantasy is not an escape from reality but an escape into reality and that we go into uh, this fiction but we, we could bring something out from it that is valuable to our lives and I never really got that from mm-hmm. Superman um, um until the Superman movie. And I think that there's something about that articulation of goodness and struggle um, in, in in Christopher Reeve's performance. I, I, I love the humanity that he brought to it, but the strength that he brought to it too. He made Superman charming. He, he, he let us inside Superman to some degree. He made him a little alienated. Um, I I really uh, appreciated that. Um, there was real humor to his performance. There was humor to it. Way. There was self-deprecation to it, but without like undermining or subverting the character. Um, he was he he was for me that that the the best argument and best embodiment of that defense of Superman as like. Um, yeah, he's super and will never be super, but he can inspire you. Yes, he's inspiring. And it's, it's something in, you know, 
in, in every aspect of that Richard Donner movie, which of course is essentially the first superhero movie, I, I, I think. Maybe I'm, I'm forgetting. Maybe there, maybe there's some proto-superhero-esque experiments that came before, but certainly that is really the first one. And so, you know, the music by John Williams. Yes. Which, like, I think the older I get, the more I do wonder if that is my favorite John Williams score ever. Obviously, that, oh, is, a, yeah. that is a tight 12-way race. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and most of those other entries are, are from Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. But the Superman music is just... It's so triumphant and so, you know, it's everything you can love about John Williams and it gives you the feeling of soaring and the scenes of Superman flying in that movie, yep. which obviously in every sort of tangible special effects way, work less well than maybe they used to. Right. The feeling of them, of him and Lois Lane and the sort of romance of that, I, I'm not sure we've really seen that in any other version of Superman on, on screen. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was funny. It was mythic. It was, from a comic book point of view, it was super exciting to see Hollywood throw state-of-the-art special effects and a huge budget against this the superhero material that up until that point had been treated as camp with the Batman TV show and then kind of like with the, the old school like cliffhanger serials with their cardboard sets and stuff like that. Um, I mean, yeah, like compared to those, it, it, it's like a John Ford movie, you right? Know? And like, like, and, and that was exciting, how... and that counted for something back then. I mean, like, like I, I think that like one of the reasons why, it, I mean, it, it's just it's a good solid movie, and 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 it, and it succeeds. But that Superman movie participated in that late seventies moment in which special effects went next level with Star Wars, right? And then with Close Encounters of a Third Kind, and then Superman comes along. And and, and, and and participates in it and special effects are going to absolutely change film uh, moving forward but it it, it it took this sort of ever increasing you know uh, uh, ever intensifying kind of chase for realism to a next level you know and to see that applied against superhero iconography and, and, and tropes in the genre uh, that was that was really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I it's funny because my my own personal favorite Superman movie, it, it is constantly in flux because the the vision of that first movie I, I still think is really unique and kind of wonderful. And weirdly, the, the two movies that I always go back and forth on with Superman are it's another example of the Jaws three Jaws four thing where. You can really look at Superman 2, it is obviously a direct sequel to the first Superman movie, um, and that movie has a lot of faults that I'll get into in a second, but, but for, for many reasons a lot of people who love the first one find the second one frustrating. Um, and in a strange way, that, that people's frustration oddly found its full flowering in Superman Returns, which is essentially a, a, a very different sequel to the first Superman. Brian Singer made the movie um, in a very passionate kind of love for the Richard Donner version. It uses the same score. It uses elements of Marlon Brando's performance that didn't make it into the original. It uses the same visuals um, in a way that... Uh, you know, Superman Returns is, is, is Superman Returns is, is a hot button issue. You know, throw that into a room full of fanboys on one side and critics on the other, and a bloodbath may ensue. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think since the movie came out, there have been a lot of people who have really kind of reclaimed it. It, it wasn't a failure, but it was certainly not a huge success, and a lot of people thought that it had some major foundational issues that I understand. But there's a lot of love in Superman Returns, and a real old-fashioned sensibility, sometimes to its detriment. You know, it, 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 its vision of Metropolis is basically New York in, in the 40s, and, uh, you know... I'm 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 not sure that Brandon Routh, who's had a really interesting career since then, he is sort of he's kind of he's tasked to play Christopher Reeve, and, and he just doesn't quite have the same ability to just be that kind of walking icon and also be a kind of funny, wry, uh, amused personality. Um, it is so beholden to the, the 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 Christopher Reeve movies to its detriment. At the same time, if you're willing to accept it on that level. Uh, I've I, I liked it a lot more than a lot of other people yeah. did, um, it's, it's, and, and and if you kind of accept it on that sort of you know diminished level, that, there's it, something very problematic about this philosophy. But if you accept it, I think it's actually a very yeah, entertaining. It's, movie. It, it's kind of a lovely movie. Now, all that being said, my favorite really I, I always go back to Superman two, and just to kind of set it up a little bit, Superman two. Parts of it were shot by Richard Donner at the same time as Superman. Richard Donner then was fired, and Richard Lester was brought in. Richard Lester, who made the the, the great Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, and the arguably almost as good Beatles movie, Help, which I always was a big fan of when I was a kid. Uh, mainly, mainly, I think I liked it more because it was in color, so I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure I can recommend it on those grounds now. Um, Richard Lester had a very different take on the material, and I think part of the reason why I enjoy Superman 2 so much um, is that it, it somehow gets the Richard Donner stuff in there, and there are really beautiful soaring moments, and there are really great romantic moments. This is the, I think thus far, the one Superman movie where Superman and Lois Lane sleep together, uh-huh. and it's it's handled in a way that is kind of actually really lovely, and the, the central story of the Superman part of the movie, this idea of, I need to give up being Superman to be a real person, I think lends a real a real pathos to the character that you don't often see because you sort of realize like oh yeah like um you know this is his tragedy his tragedy is he can't be like us it's an inter- it's it's an interesting subtle take on the material that can get lost but this idea that deep down all superman really wants to do is be a normal guy and the scene of him being beaten up in the bar is something i've always thought to be really interesting because then you sort of realize in a way like Oh, if he were a normal guy, he would be Clark Kent. You know, like. that that whole section of the film, beginning with 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 Clark Kent and Lois Lane going to Niagara Falls, um, and then like having to share a room together, and then I believe that like this it goes that 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 Clark Kent's glasses fall into this fire that's in their room, and he like doesn't want to be seen without his glasses because it could betray the fact that he looks exactly like Superman. <laughs> and But he reaches into the fire and grabs his glasses and puts them on and it doesn't hurt him. And that's the moment where Lois Lane's like putting some things together. And, and, that, and that you get this moment of frustration from Clark in which he's been caught, but it also expresses like his utter exasperation with this whole like ruse that he's that he's that he's uh has to live uh and and, and perpetrate 
um, to protect his identity. And then he just kind of <laughs> gives up and surrenders and like like adopts the tall posture and becomes Superman right before his eyes. Oh, God. That's, you know, it's, from that moment to giving up his powers and getting beaten up and then reclaiming powers... Christopher Reeve has never been better in a Superman movie. And maybe we've not seen acting better in a super that's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that that he's really kind of selling you on many different layers of, of 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 the bind of his character and making this character really accessible, really poignant. And yeah, like going up to uh, go, going up, you know, going into that like Alaska bar, getting beaten up by that guy, um, and then like, and then and then the coda at the end. Can we just like, you know, yeah, like yeah, skip yeah, ahead of to the end where he kind of goes back and 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 beats the crap out of that guy and completely shames the guy. Now Superman has actually been never been more fascist and psychopathic than that <laughs> moment. And in fact, I don't know if you remember, but in with amid all the controversy about Man of Steel a couple of years ago. I went back and like uh, wrote this piece, this gallery about how, in my opinion, I actually thought that Christopher Reeves' Superman was far more psycho <laughs> and far more absolutely alarming than like everything, anything that like uh, Henry Cavill's uh, Superman represented. That said, forgetting that for a moment, that moment I, is like, it's a really kind of like I. I it's 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 a wonderful moment. I love that moment as a kid, but it's also really scary now. Yes, <laughs> like looking back on it, that we we cheered for that. I, I think this is why I I really gravitate to Superman two more and more, and I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, part of what's interesting about these characters is we've seen so many versions of them, and you know. Is Superman 2 the movie? I, I would tell people, this is the one you should watch first if you've never seen the Superman movie. No, I would definitely direct them to the first Superman. But once you've seen all the movies, is there one you want to kind of go back to? And and are, is there a movie that actually... You seem to find more things to appreciate about the more you watch it. And for me, that's Superman 2 because there's all the stuff you're talking about. There's the poignance, there's the melancholy. There's a real serious and thoughtful take on the material that I feel like at that time, you know, obviously by then Superman had been around for 30 years, so a lot had been done with him, but that still feels very new in a way today. You also have Richard Lester, who seems to have a very comedic and, 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 and you know, parodic and, you know, de- like, like very destructive take on the material. And so, you know, you have things like General Zod, who is played perfectly by Terrence Stamp, oh, yeah. and is just, is a real figure of malevolence. You'll have him go out on the streets of Metropolis and start blowing his super breath. <laughs> and then you will have, and, and you know, th- listen, I get it. The dissonance is there, and I understand why, if you have just been watching a 15-minute serious, poignant take on Superman, this might seem strange. There's a five-minute sequence of just sort of like, you know, prat falling and people sort of turning end over end, and at, at one point, while he's blowing his super breath... Someone walks out of an ice cream shop <laughs> holding ice cream, and then first, the, the, I, 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 I think I'm, I'm getting this right, first their ice cream blows away, and then they blow away, yeah. and then the ice cream shop owner comes out and says, sir, you forgot your change, and then he blows away, and it's just, you know, there's, there's it's interesting to me that that movie... I think if it works for you, it works because it, it can actually support a couple different 
interesting takes on, on, on the material. And it can be very serious and very over the top, and it can be very comical. And, you know, it, it can be romantic, and then also at the end it can have the single weirdest moment in any Superman movie when having told Lois Lane that he is Superman and they have consummated their romance and they've become, you know, they've essentially said we are together now. He gives her an amnesia kiss. Oh my which gosh, is, that's right. Among other things, A, crazy, and B, like, you know, that that's when they do the thing that after the John Byrne reboot, after we left the the, the, the crisis era, they kind of stopped doing this. This is still the era where it's like, um, let's just give Superman a new power that we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, like you know, this is, you know, it, it, it reminds you that we're now in this framework where you understand why Zack Snyder maybe felt anxious about doing too much with anything besides, like, super strength and flight and, and heat vision, because anything else might seem goofy or, you know, we don't want to just... We don't want to make this character this never-ending Swiss Army knife of superpowers. And Superman Two is still the moment when it's like, yeah, like I don't know, maybe he has telepathy too. Like who can who can say? And <laughs> I, I I find I, I really enjoy that, and I think that's something that I'll be really interested to see. Like because. I think what a lot of people responded to negatively about Man of Steel, and the reason why I I, I was someone Jeff who, in my write up of it, I certainly constructed kind of a straw man in the sense of not acknowledging that if you take Superman two as seriously as we all took Man of Steel, there's plenty of stuff in there that you know you wouldn't necessarily read it in a politically you know, I mean yeah yeah I fashion. mean to interrupt real quick but but yes I mean like if you think about the ending of Superman two and how Superman saves the day he tricks the the, the 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 phantom zone villains zod and company into giving up their powers which right then and there neutralizes the problem of them right he could stop there now they have no powers they're just ordinary people and he can throw them in prison no that's not good enough for lois and superman then they have to kill them I mean, if I recall correctly, they kill those guys. They, they, they set up a sting operation to rob them of their powers, and then they throw them into the abyss of the Antarctic in the Fortress of Solitude, yes, right? Yes. I mean, it isn't just enough to break his hand and then like throw him in jail. I mean, they're not. That's not. No, no. I'm going to kill you. And, and, and it's it's even it's cold blooded premeditated it's murder. Even, it's not even what Henry Cavill does in Man of Steel. <laughs> now we're gonna have this argument again. No, it's no, no, not no. even what Man of Steel. Man and, and, and Man of Steel. I mean, yes. Okay, yes. They destroy a whole city and he kills a bunch of people, presumably. But in that moment that everyone is outraged by, like. There, at least, Superman had cause to break some guy's neck and stop him because he's killing, he's getting, like, Zod is using heat vision in Man of Steel and he's about to blow up and incinerate and murder a whole family. And, like, for some reason, in his sloppiness and his amateurness as a superhero, like uh, uh, Superman feels like he has no choice but to, to, but to, but to break Zod's neck to stop him from doing that. But that's a moment that has made, that is a decision that's made in the moment and what she immediately grieves. Like Superman and Superman 2 commits total calculated, cold-blooded, premeditated murder and feels really good about it. I mean, it's completely like... He does that, he does that, and then he goes and beats up a human bully. And then bully. he goes and beats up a bully. He like... 
But this is this is actually interesting. And he lies. It's like I've been working out. No, you're not. You're like a Superman. You you were you're an alien. You just completely abused your power to throw a guy through a pinball machine. We put all our trust in you knowing what's best, and you're just like really a, a very petty human being. So this, this actually gets to something that I find interesting because I think. The thing you want with Batman v Superman is not just here are two guys playing these characters. You want to feel as if here are two hugely fascinating, uh, important figures who don't just have their own personalities, but have their own iconography. And you want to see those people... Like, like, you know, you, you want to see all those things clash. And, and, you know, it's different, I think, than the Avengers, where as different as Thor and Iron Man and Captain America are, part of what I think makes that work is this sense of, you know what, get these guys around a... Get these guys their own round table and put them in a room, and they're all gonna. They will have a meeting of the minds, and even though one's a Norse god and one's a scientist and one comes from World War II, they're all kind of uh, together on this. And with Batman v Superman, you want to feel as if here are two icons and iconographies that are dueling with each other. And what's interesting to me is, I think the reason why we don't. To attack Superman 2 for all the reasons that you just quite rightly attacked it is that I, I think it's it's operating in an area where if Superman in that movie reacted the way Superman does in Man of Steel, it would sort of ruin the whole enterprise. I think Superman needs to maybe be a little bit more in the realm of the symbolic. And so, you know, you don't think too much about how General Zod just died in Superman 2 because, you know, that's not really a movie that and th- that anyone dies in, really. You know, that's not really a movie where, you know, you, you that's not a movie where you honestly believe you are seeing visions of city destruction. That's a right. movie where visions of city destruction are General Zod blowing his super breath and, and ice cream going flying and everything. And I think, you know, strangely, in both Superman Returns and in Man of Steel, you had two very different directors, two directors who've done a lot of work in the superhero field, who both... I think each in their own way took the Richard Donner movies and said, what if we took this stuff seriously? Right. Brian Singer, I think, decided he was going to take the emotions seriously. He was going to kind of be like, what if Clark Kent and Lois Lane were two people and five five years later, one of the the fascinating things I've always thought about the Superman Returns movie is that it, it it is literally, we are seeing these people who have a lot of history in a way that we rarely get in superhero movies now. That movie seemed to kind of say... What if we doubled down on all the poignance of the first two Superman movies? And essentially, you know, there's a real sadness there, which I think people, frankly, didn't like that much. Right, the most dramatic retcon in that movie is the depiction of Lois Lane. Is the depiction of Lois Lane and, and you know, certainly the fact that, spoiler alert, they, they have a child together. Right. And the strange, the strange thing is, when you watch the movie now because there's no further movie in that series ever again, you kind of realize, like, oh, that's a movie about them saying they will never be together. I think it was interesting to miss that because you watched that movie assuming there'd be sequels where James Barson's character would leave at some point. But now you're just kind of like, oh, that, that's a movie where these characters who, when we meet them in Superman 1, the Richard Donner version, they're young and they're kind of falling for each other and they're full of hope for the future. This is them basically saying we were a relationship that didn't work out, which is an interesting take that people didn't respond to. With Zack Snyder, what's interesting is 
as different as Man of Steel was, you could look at it as essentially a compilation of Superman 1 and 2. You, it hits the same beats, Krypton, growing up with dad, dad dying somehow, not just by a heart attack, it's got to be a digital tornado, but, uh, you know, like, Superman goes to Metropolis, Superman, strangely there's even, like, a sequence similar to the one in Superman 2 where he's kind of bullied in that bar, I think also in Alaska, strangely? Yes. Um, and then he kind of gets his revenge on that bully, which you're right, a lot of people put it in a bed of steel as saying that that's not Superman, and we give it a pass in Superman 2. But really, the difference is Snyder was like, we will focus on the, the, the reality of these people fighting in this world, and we will focus on the reality of when they're fighting through a city street, you're not going to have people kind of playfully running all around. You have people who are, like, scared, and you have, like, buildings that are being pushed over, and, you know, you're, you're not going to have Superman do... In Superman Returns, for instance, the Daily Bugle sign falls and is about to crush Perry White, and the Superman catches it and saves the day. Man of Steel, you're not going to have that. You're going to have Perry White struggling to free fake Jimmy Olsen, who's a woman now, from debris while all around them hundreds of people die. And I wonder if part of the problem is, I wonder if Superman needs to live in a world where there's just a little bit more of a... Not to say G-rated, because that's not quite accurate, but I, I wonder if, if he needs to live in a world where those concerns don't concern you, because the second they do, then it all, the, the, the whole thing stops making sense, kind of. Yeah, I mean, the, those first two Superman movies, as much as, like, I'm pointing out, like, the, like, darkness in them. Totally. The truth is, is that those... those even those scenes are played for a comedy, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and the truth is that, that all the guys, all the bad guys that that got what coming to them, like deserved it, you know. But, he, but like, even they're the, also sort of like they're also kind of like Dick Tracy bad guys, yeah. You they know? Are. Like, right. like 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 Lex Luthor is Gene Hackman just going miles over the top, and, and you know, Zod and his fellow people are dressed like you know Abba disco followers. villains, yeah, yeah like, like, like disco villains. And, and even yeah. in the, even in the scene where they dispatch the villains. It's it's literally uh, it's it, it they are they are dispatched you know like it's not about like wallowing in the sound of a broken neck or the actual act of killing it's no they throw them against the wall and they slide down into a pit and we really don't know where they go but we it's it's only one of those things that when you think about it yeah they probably died in that moment yes, you know yes. it's not about uh it, and 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 it's kind of funny it's it's rousing the our emotions in that moment is that we're kind of thrilled that superman used his brain to completely outsmart these people and that's kind of exciting to see like the the, the climax of a superhero movie largely hinges on an intelligent act of trickeration by, by 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 superman he's actually very batman in that moment right he he uses his brain and then it's just like everything else is just like this real comic execution of getting rid of the villains and and, and then that's it but I mean that's kind of the tone that we're working with at that point right yeah. right um the other thing we have to probably take into account and and this is one of those things that's really hard to estimate um uh, the, the 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 value of all this is that you know different times right like superman comes out in the late 70s n- not a great decade pretty pretty Cynical. This is the d- decade of the, of malaise. This is a, a decade of energy recession. Not a lot of good stuff going on in America. We're coming out of where we're suffering from the '60s hangover, and in comes Superman. This really old-fashioned, nostalgic, 
baby boomer nostalgia for the greatest generation and all of that Americana mythos. And they use state of the art uh, uh, special effects to really sell that to us. And we rejoice in that. We, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a blast of lightness and feel goodness and uh, uh, old fashioned like American can doism at a time when we're, we're lacking for that versus now in this new century in this and, and, and where again, lots of darkness, lots of like challenges facing us. And the Superman we get is basically a Superman that rubs our nose and our own <laughs> grit and grimness. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, it's not necessarily as, as, as pleasing and as satisfying and as uh, exciting as, as, yeah. as, as past. I, I think that's why I, my, I'm intrigued to see if in Batman v Superman, if just having Batman in there makes Superman into more of the kind of character that you were just describing, like it makes him more into a, a, a more older fashioned Superman than we necessarily got in Man of Steel. Yeah, um, but I, I don't know because again, like I don't think it will. Though. Well, I mean, I, you know, again, because I think that what will trip it up is, I think that Batman. What I think is going to be interesting about this movie is that I kind of wonder if. Bat- Batman's critique of Superman is really inconvenient for us because we're going to agree with him. Right. And um, and that kind of really makes the wish fulfillment fantasy of Superman much more complicated. On top of all of that, I think that Zack Snyder really loves the religious allegory of Superman and viewing him as a as as the god that we wish we had, but a god that we don't know if we can trust. Oh and again, this kind of interpretation, these kinds of things that he's layering into the film, like make Superman very inter- complicated and interesting. But I think what you kind of said is, but we really don't want that complication on Superman. Wait. We don't want that interesting Superman. We really don't. I guess. I, I guess. And, and like, I do want to clarify because I worry it may sound like I'm saying Superman can never be grown up, and that's obviously not true. But I, I think about Superman stories that really stick with me, and the one that I always go back to that I, I, I think has become sort of a focal point for a lot of the anti-Snyder movement. Which, which I, I, I want to clarify, although I've said things about his movies that I don't like. I, I, I'm still hopeful that his take can produce something good. But, you know, All-Star Superman, to me, really changed my mind about a lot of things because this is, of course, the great Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely miniseries. It's 12 parts, and it's worth seeking out and finding. Um, because it, it deals with emotions that are actually quite, you know... Um, feel very human and it deals with you know superman uh is is feeling his mortality and superman is is feeling as if he needs to make a change and the people that he is interacting with they have a lot of history but you feel as if the history is really building towards something and yet you know it's sort of told in a way where it's not real in the sense of buildings are falling on people and there is a military industrial complex critique baked into the critique of Superman. It's real in a very human sense. And I think that is kind of the realm in which I think Superman works best is how can Superman's, how, how can Superman's battles against um, supervillains 
how how emotionally does that translate to us? And what's interesting is that Batman, I think, works in a lot of different ways because I think he can work in that way, or he can work in the way of like what does what does the state of Batman say about the state of America and, and the state of all of our fears? And so that'll be interesting to see. This feels more like a Batman movie than a Superman movie to me. The right. movie that we have coming up, which may actually play to its benefit, but uh, you know. Following that leads us to the other side of this question. Well, 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 I just wanted to like just two cents on All Star Superman, which is I really love that too. Um, mostly because I just I like it as a vehicle for Grant Morrison's voice and Frank Quitely's art, and I do like the Superman that we encounter there. If I recall correctly, what the defining feature of this Superman is that he's he he uh, he kind of gets overloaded. On, on on solar powered energy and now as a result his cells are dying and and he's he's facing a real mortality issue is mm -hmm. that correct exactly right and um I think that that made an interesting Superman that we really not uh, didn't really encounter before the other thing that I think is really interesting about Grant Morrison I forget how much he really engages this idea uh, in this story but I mean like Alan Moore he's really interested in science. And I think that he has this vision of Superman as an expression of scientific possibility. And this, for me, kind of points to the kind of Superman that I would like to see more of. Is I think as long as Superman is completely defined as first responder, as savior, as a guy who's going to rescue us from our jams... He become that characterization of Superman uh, is 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 a dead end because mm -hmm. it just you know it, you, you uh, I think that that's ultimately not very satisfying because again all it does is remind you is that Superman doesn't exist. Yes, yeah. I just think anytime you try to do a realistic Superman, you hit the point where it's like, oh, but wait, he flies. Well, yeah, <laughs> but as long as it's defined around this characterization, wait, <laughs> as long as he's defined around the characterization of a wish fulfillment of an interventionist God that will save us from calamity and catastrophe, it will. he will always be complicated. He will always be dissatisfying. He will always be subject to deconstruction. Um, the more interesting Superman that I would like to see on screen, and it might not necessarily exist within the current comic book universes or movie universes, where um, which is that Superman as an avatar of human possibility. Like, Superman should be our astronaut who's exploring space on our behalf, right? Like, um, he should be an explorer that is the diving into the deepest trenches of the ocean to survey for us, like, and uh, the, the places that we can't go and expanding our knowledge and our possibility. I I'd like to see the sort of the science hero Superman that represents us and takes us to places that, that we can't go and we share with him in, in the discovery and the fruits of his success because he's expanding our knowledge base. He's expanding what we know that this is the Superman that that is really interesting and 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 means I think can mean something to the real world as opposed to him just stuck in savior mode. Yeah, it's funny. What you're saying is making me realize, in a strange way, Interstellar is kind of Christopher Nolan's Superman movie in that regard. Right. You know, you have 
same iconography of like the farmland and you know this this, this sort of all American version of America and and you know even like you know the McConaughey character obviously Superman doesn't have kids but you know there's this there's the same mix of like I'm a dynamic explorer but I also have a family back on the farm and it's interesting just because one of the things that rubbed me wrong with Interstellar ultimately was that given what we kind of think of Christopher Nolan as being as a filmmaker, it was actually quite sentimental. Yeah. But, but I wonder if that means that at some point in his career he'll, he'll, he'll reach a point where actually he becomes the ideal Superman uh, filmmaker. Um, I'm not sure we're there yet. Let's talk about Batman, though, Jeff. Uh, fair to say that I think, as far as movies go, Batman has been more uh, successful on an individual movie level and certainly on a wider zeitgeist level for the, for the last uh, 10 to 15 years of movies. Um, what's your favorite Batman movie? Um, I know what I'm going to choose and I know what you're going to choose. I think for the for, for, it would be better for our conversation if you go first. Okay, so um, I uh, have a very vivid memory of Batman Returns. Um, I was still pretty young when that movie came into theaters, um, and it, it is one of the first movies I remember seeing where specifically after the fact, it was said in my family, not necessarily as, as a bad thing, but just it, it, was, it was clearly stated, and I'm not sure if it came from my brother or maybe from my parents, this idea that, oh, that was a, that was a darker movie than we were expecting. And Batman Returns, you mean, is the second Tim Burton yes, Batman Yes, the movie. second Tim Burton Batman. The first Tim Burton Batman had been on heavy replay in my house. Uh, I, was, I was quite young when that came out. I'm not sure I saw it in theaters, but I definitely remember that was a big thing for me. I had action figures. I'd watched the first movie a lot. Um, and the second movie, when it came out, was also a major event. And just, I recall distinctively even as a seven or eight year old, however old I was, it was made clear to me that like, almost in a way, like I saw something that maybe I shouldn't have seen, mm. which, which as a kid, of course, you're always very interested in. Um, like everyone else, uh, I went through the phases of watching the Joel Schumacher Batman, uh, which, it, it, you know, Batman Forever, I, I was still young enough that I was kind of like, Batman's in a movie, that's great. Batman and Robin clearly had some more issues. Um, like everyone else, Love Batman Begins, Love the Dark Knight. I kind of returned to Batman Returns uh, three or four years ago. It was on TV. I watched a few scenes of it and decided, you know, what the heck, I'll just kind of, you know, rent the movie. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to rent things now um, online. And what strikes me about Batman Returns now that we are so far from its moment, I mean, here was a movie that the first Batman had been hugely successful, and this was a movie that was as big as, as, big as, as a blockbuster could possibly be. Um, two things I love about Batman Returns. One is, I think it is the most interesting big screen take on Batman as far as being intensely um, comic booky, and by that I mean intensely artificial. Um, I, I think that Tim Burton really got to sort of exalt in the kind of, uh, you know, gothic architecture and Rococo vision that he had sort of tried to do in the first Batman, but if you look at that now, you can kind of see the seams showing. There aren't as many seams in Batman Returns. But I also love it because it does something that Dark Knight does in a very different way. Um, Batman Returns is a movie about human beings, about people, who are totally uh, representations of things, who are each kind of totally insane in their own way. But it is as much about Selena Kyle and Oswald Cobblepot 
and as it is about Bruce Wayne, to the point where, you know, this is the kind of movie where I think in the first half hour you barely see Bruce Wayne or Batman at all. Um, you know, you, as far as having a character arc that begins, has a middle, and then ends in this movie, Selina Kyle is sort of more the character who we follow in that way. And that strikes me as being something really unusual um, in superhero movies, much less in blockbuster movies in general. And I always go back to, there's a scene in Batman Returns when we meet Selina Kyle in that movie. She is, you know, the, the sort of nerdy receptionist. And already we're kind of in, in the realm of make-believe because Michelle Pfeiffer, at the moment when she was one of the most beautiful people who'd ever lived, is sort of wearing glasses and frumpy hair. And it's very much that kind of she's all that thing of like, oh, Selina Kyle, like she's just some, <laughs> some kind of random but a busybody. She uh, gets pushed out of a window by her boss, uh, Christopher Walken, as Max Shrek, which is just such a lovely addition to the Batman mythos. It's new for the movie, but fits in perfectly, and also fits in perfectly with Tim Burton's eternal Nosferatu fetish. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, we see her return to her house, and, you know, just there's this sense of someone becoming something new. And, and the movie, I think to its credit... You know, you could sort of kind of read it as, like, the cat's bringing her back to life. Like, you know, n not literally. Like, but somehow there is this sense of she died and was reborn and this new Selena Kyle will now emerge. And I just think that how that notion of becoming a costumed maniac plays out and how, you know, you also have the penguins. Uh, this is a very different version of the penguin that is just totally insane and has nothing to do with the version from the comic books. The fact that he is sort of initially set up as a reverse Bruce Wayne figure with his own sort of tragic family backstory and that, that turns out to be all a lie. There's a lot of real emotional depth to that movie that runs alongside of the fact that I think that like a lot of people, I, I loved the Christopher Nolan movies, the, the first two more so than the last one. And maybe it's just easier that now that those movies have really established a framework for here's what kind of reality can feel like in these movies, the, the totally surreal world that Batman Returns conjures up is just something that I find more evocative with, with, with each passing year. Um, that was a lot about, about Batman Returns. Uh, how do you feel about the Burton movies in general, and, and how do they play into your choice for uh, the best Batman movie? Yeah, I think that like uh, the, the Tim Burton Batman movies introduce us to this sort of philosophy and formula that would inform a lot of superhero movies, but not all of them moving forward, which is the idea of partnering, uh, uh, pairing a, a very strong idiosyncratic director with this material and letting them make essentially a movie that launches a franchise, but is also an auteur film at the same time, right? Yeah, he was um, coming off of Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, and that was basically it before Batman, which is remarkable. For a lot of people, the best things and worst things about those Batman movies is that they were Tim Burton movies. And um, on one hand, there were a lot of people who saw those films as like, oh, a perfect marriage of Tim Burton's sensibility with 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 material i mean it's it's gothic it's strange it's neurotic this sort of like bruce wayne is sort of a schizoid personality um the idea of him this sort of like cave dwell, dwelling you know alienated figure that's alienated from his society yet drawn to like engage it and serve it but always at a distance from it 
um, a guy who feels like a freak. You know, yeah, this, this is he's Tim kind of Burton a nerdy freak in those movies, yeah, right. which is very interesting. I mean, and, even even when you see Michael Keaton, who's great in them, as sort of playboy Bruce Wayne, you never you never get the moments that you get in the other movies where he's kind of I'm a I'm a f- fake playboy like living the high life. Like it's very interesting. And Batman as an expression of his own of Bruce Wayne's own uniqueness, but also his damage and his own strangeness. And sort of like like occupying that as an identity and sort of making his society deal with it, <laughs> um, but to a degree. Um, like it was a perfect marriage of material. I think that with the first film, which I loved a lot and which was a very important movie for me growing up, um, like y- you sensed Tim Burton kind of working out. Like w- where do I stop and Batman begins? What's the... You know, yes. kind of figuring things out for himself. That movie is also one of the rare movies where there's an actor in it who's actually a little too good that he kind of like Jack Nicholson in the first movie is super fun to watch, but right. like the movie doesn't seem to quite want to be as much about him as it kind of is, just because he he is all the gravity is being pulled in his direction in in the first film, which is which is very fun, but I think also makes the first film a little bit unsteady at right. that time. And I think there are some things that 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 these Batman movies work against uh, Tim Burton's strengths at least at that uh, that work against Tim Burton at least at that time I I think at this time Tim Burton is not a great director of kinetic action he has never been a good action right. director and, he's, yeah. and, and so the fight scenes are very kind of unsatisfying uh, his vision of Batman uh uh, the suit as like obviously this needs to be some kind of armor uh, works against a very kind of like you know when he's st- when Batman is standing still he's very interesting to shoot when he's moving he's not he looks like a statue he yeah. looks like I mean it, it the rubbery like, suits yeah the, there are like Ray Harryhausen monsters that move more believably <laughs> that 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 move more organically than poor Michael Keaton does and his his woes with that suit I think are are, are on the record right. in in the history <laughs> but Batman Returns I liked a lot more than Batman because it's just a more successful film than the first one it's First and foremost, I don't know if it's a great Batman movie, but it's a great Tim Burton movie. And I think that was the interesting thing that that Batman Returns represents is that uh, that uh, and, 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 and affirmation, I think, and validation of that philosophy of auteur being matched with material, which is, I think that uh, Tim Burton stopped worrying. I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, so I, I hate speculating about motives. But what it feels to me is, is that Tim Burton just said, I'm just going to make a Tim Burton movie. I got to make a movie that makes sense yes, to me yes. emotionally and aesthetically. And the character arcs in that movie of, 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 of Batman, of Catwoman, of, of the Penguin work really well. And this sort of idea of like um, these sort of disenfranchised, uh, traumatized, uh, tragedy marked characters and their different responses to tragedy, turning them into monsters of different sorts, um, but how they manage their monstrosity and how they then interact with society with it um, is, is is a theme that like Tim Burton returns to time and again in his work. Um, 
and it works really well in this movie yeah, and it leads to interesting directions and different ends. You're really right. Like, th- there's an aspect to those three characters and I always like how on the posters for that movie those three characters are on the poster. It, right. It is, it is, it is, it is and, and that is not just paying lip service, lip service to this idea. This is a movie with three leads. One of them happens to have his name in the title. But it, there is a sense of like, they're all kind of Edward Scissorhands in, in a way and in, in different variations. Yes. Like, you know, the, the, the literal freakish creation of the movie and I, I, I use I use freakish as a very positive way as far as just being a, an incredible visual creation is the penguin who is just right. like like Edward Scissorhands lives in some remote place that is very different from where the normal people live and there is that there's that great clash that I think Tim Burton at his best always achieved which is the grotesque fantasy which is almost kind of the side that he's on and then the normal and the the, the place and you know in Edward Scissorhands there's literally that where it's like here's the small sur- suburban community with a scary Vincent Price castle sort of lingering over it but there's really that sense here to all those characters but it sounds like what you're saying which I think may be totally fair is this is a good movie that does not necessarily achieve being a good Batman movie. That's and right. That, that's that's kind of interesting. And, and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and just a couple things. Michael Keaton was always a really good Batman. I mean, I understand why he was a complicated figure back in the day because we just knew him as a comedic actor. But he's really good in these movies. He's great. Oh, and, um, and But Michelle Pfeiffer and Danny DeVito in Batman Returns are just fantastic. And... and, and I, 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 I really like those those three characters and those three performances. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, for me, I think a lot of it comes to the fact that one of the things... Dark Knight Rises, which I don't think we'll talk about too much, <laughs> um, unless you're going to really surprise me here. Um, you know, whatever works in that movie, the thing that doesn't work for me at any point is the emotional journey that the characters are on, which I know sounds really, really hazy and kind of a lame, you know, writer's room thing to say. But given that in that movie, you have Batman essentially, uh, you know, seeming to fall in love with two very different women over the course of, of the movie. And maybe falling in love is a strong word, but those relationships are there. The fact that what happens with those relationships on the page seems like it should be really interesting. And in the movie, doesn't really have any payoff whatsoever. Um, there's, you know, you, when you go back to Batman Returns, there's that great scene at the masquerade ball where Selena Kyle is dancing with Bruce Wayne. And it's really clear that they feel something for each other. And at the same point, they realize who they actually are. And there's just a lot of beautiful, complicated emotions there that, to me, just, you know, go a lot deeper, I think, than a lot of movies do, period, much less superhero movies. Um, but uh, I want to shift the conversation away from Burton, Jeff, because I know you have a different uh, Batman movie that you'll pick out. But as maybe for some fave. for some similar reasons, because my favorite, I mean, it's it's a little too easy, I know. Um, but I I love Christopher Nolan's second Batman movie, uh, The Dark Knight. Oh, so good. Um, it's, 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 it is a, a, a close race for me with those two movies. It's, it, it is tough to beat The Dark Knight. I recognize that The Dark Knight is problematic. There have been uh, very uh, uh, debated uh, uh, video essays about whether or not Christopher Nolan himself can actually direct action. All that great. Um, but 
I just love from the opening frame, opening shots of that movie and these panoramic shots of Chicago um, doubling for Gotham City. Very different visual approach than Tim Burton. Oh, God, you know, Tim, Tim Burton creates his Gotham on a back lot. Is completely in a very artificial, um, uh, like gothic environment. Um, and and one of the things I love about Tim Burton is that how uh, how artificial his films are. Um, uh, but that's a whole other thing. But Christopher Nolan, on on the other hand, uh, chases realism, and he wants to use real places to double for his mythic Gotham City. So that whole bit of business of like just pushing in on that. That, that that building in Chicago with the reflecting mirror uh, windows and then uh, with that with that with this the sinister low hum on the soundtrack you know and it, you're you're immediately in the grip of something ominous is about to happen in this city and this film coming out like not long after 9/11 um, there's just something that 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 movie just captures this this feeling of terror and terrorism, like uh, uh, that something bad is about to happen in, in, in our real world. Uh, I, I, I would just grip from the get-go. This, this movie, much like Batman Returns, is more successful, I think, as a Christopher Nolan auteur film. Oh, that's interesting. Than maybe a Batman film. Because really, as I look back on it now, it's it's surprising how little Batman is actually in the movie. Yes, yes, totally. Um, it's, I mean, like Harvey Dent is sort of the he he's the the Selena Kyle of the movie in some ways because yeah, you're, you're you're more following him and his sort of journey than you are necessarily Batman. It's it's really it's 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 a terrorism movie about this Joker. This this character played by Heath Ledger in a fantastic performance um, as. Uh, as the Joker, as both this um, very human, very psychotic, damaged, like uh, psychopath, but also kind of this sort of larger than life force of nature embodiment of philosophical ideas, or just just chaos, like waging this war against the illusion of civilization and morality and 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 and, and, and all of that, just waging this sort of act of sustained terror against Gotham as a, as, a, as a physical thing, but also as a spiritual state of mind, as a philosophical construct, and, um, and just testing the philosophies and moral attitudes and strengths and weaknesses of all of its greatest heroes. Um, I, I was just completely caught up in it as a... As, as an action film, as a character study of of, of 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 like of the Joker and all of these other uh, the, the characters, um, it just really works for me in a way that that I, I struggle talking about it because that's actually one of the things that I find really interesting about the movie. I don't know if I really completely understand it. To be really honest with you, I don't. And that brings me back to the movie time and again. I feel like it's about something, and maybe it's about nothing. Who knows? But I mean. But I, I, I return to it because there's something real that I feel in the movie that is being portrayed by uh, Heath Ledger, that's being portrayed by the actors and that no one is going for. Uh, something that makes sense to me when I watch it, that I th when I'm thinking through it, but, but, but then uh, but kind of leaves me afterwards and only haunts me in, in, in I, retrospect. I agree, and yeah. I'm just left with like 
really haunting mess- images and disturbing <laughs> scenes and and uh, and and even the end of the film, which you've already talked about earlier in this podcast, I think is just one of the most chillingly chilling triumphant moments in any hero narrative ever. This idea of of sacrifice being defined by a hero willing to sort of like take on the sins and being seen as a villain uh, by his society so that a lie can flourish and redeem his city. It's it's very subversive. It's, it's subversive. And, and, you know, what's good about it, too, is, like, we kind of forget now, this was the time period when every superhero movie ended the same way with the superhero flying off or swinging off or going off. There, there was, or, you know, like, end of Ghost Rider, he drives off in the distance. There was always this, there was literally, you could do it like clockwork, the final scene of, I'm off and I'm solving more things and doing more adventures. And the fact that the end of The Dark Knight is that so perfectly and is, is a great version of that and is also basically I am driving into my own private damnation. It's just something that is really interesting. I, I loved everything you said and it, 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 it makes me realize something that I, I, I think I'd forgotten about The Dark Knight, which is the character of the Joker is so interesting because he really, you know, more than ever after The Dark Knight, but even before The Dark Knight, there was always in these movies this sense of where do these people come from? And, and you see it now because, you know, there are superhero movies that are sequels that are still somehow origin stories. The fact that in Batman v Superman, as you said earlier, this is still a young Superman learning the ropes. You know, on the villain side of these movies, we often get some understanding of why they are the way they are. And the fact that the Joker teases us with that idea and and teases us with origin stories and then just throws them aside and says none of that is true. I find that to be the real heart of what you're talking about with the movie, which is, you know, you want to say, maybe now some of us want to go to that movie and say, oh, well, this is a Bush-era, post-9-11, you know, military-industrial complex, like, piece of propaganda, you know, and this is, you know, the, the fact that Batman kind of uses his own version of the Patriot Act at the end is something you want to say. And then you watch it and you say, well, no, that's not, that's not quite true. And, and, you know, that doesn't quite entirely line up. And then you kind of want to say, okay, well, you know, maybe this is a movie about, you know, how the creation of symbols is, you know, the, the fact that Harvey Dent kind of becomes a symbol at the end. You could read that as sort of oh, that's actually awful. Like, you know, Harvey Dent, you know, was a real person who really lived and really suffered from these things. And so to sort of take that person and make him into something he isn't, it's just, it's it's very hard to pin down, but you're exactly right. When you watch it, it just unfolds perfectly. And I, I think that's something that is really interesting and really unique it's, in superhero movies. It's funny. Are, are you suggesting that there is a body of thought out there that looks at the Dark Knight and says that it actually is like an affirmation of the Bush era, that it is pro? There like, are, I mean, I mean there, there there are arguments. There, there, there are arguments that essentially, you know, 
like um, and, and saying it's just Bush is, is perhaps not that accurate because obviously this this came out while Bush was still president, but we were leading into a, 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 a this was right in the middle of the election. Um, the, 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 there is a thinking that says that essentially, you know, Morgan Freeman has has built for him essentially the NSA, you know, Patriot Act. We're hacking everybody thing, which the movie kind of has its cake and eats it to where it says, well. After this is done, we're not going to use this anymore. But for this one time, we will hack into everyone's phone and use it to geolocate everything. And so that is essentially the argument of, like, you know, Bruce Wayne and Batman in this movie is sort of, you know, the Jack Bauer figure who will do anything and go anywhere and break all civil liberties for the greater good. Which, again, you know, is true, but also the movie seems to say that that's a bad thing and he should be punished for it. So, you know, it's... It, it seems to lead in both directions, but there, there are definitely people who look at it that way. Yeah. It's sort of a kind of crypto-conservative take on the material. Uh, well, I don't... Yeah, it's funny because like, I don't necessarily see that movie as coming down on one side yes. or another. I think it just kind of like asks us to look into a mirror and say, do the ends justify the means? Yeah. And at what point in chasing that do we like cross a line and lose our soul? And the fact that the Joker, credit to Heath Ledger so much, the fact that, as you said, the Joker is somehow a symbol and, and also a knowing symbol of all of this. Like his his purpose seems to literally be to ask these sort of philosophical right. questions of us. It's just it's incredible that 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 works as a character who is exciting and fun to watch is so remarkable. Like his one of his major philosophical perspectives is that. Uh, is he challenges the philosophical idea of the whole Batman project. The idea that we as humans will always, like human beings are weak and they're, they're flawed and we will always let each other down. But if, but if I can create a symbol and I can like live out that symbol with integrity, then that can never be corrupted. And in comes Joker and he wants to like test that theory to the extreme and like his whole thing is that i'm going to make you repudiate everything that you say that you believe in to to, to prove that like everything can be corrupted and um and he succeeds in that with harvey dent mm -hmm. he succeeds in that in harvey dent but then that whole twist ending where batman then participates in this cover-up and saying no like uh, like we need like no 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 hard what what needs to survive Harvey Dent is is the the image of the white knight the, the like the, the 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 goodness that he represented it, it, it's really unfortunate that Harvey Dent was corrupted by the Joker but that's not Harvey Dent's fault that's the Joker's fault what needs to flourish is his goodness. So let's prop up that image, yeah. and then I will take on the sins of Harvey Dent. And like, as my, my my symbol, this sort of like dark knight, this sort of like extreme vigilante, honestly, like doesn't really deserve to flourish, you right. know. So I'll, I'll I'll take that on. But which is interesting is then going into the Dark Knight Rises, which I agree is 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 not a successful movie. But what's interesting about that movie is is that. It, it revisits that sin, that deception, that conspiracy that Gordon, Jim Gordon and, and Bruce Wayne like enter into at the end of The Dark Knight and says that um, 
is that that wasn't a good idea, that this sort of like phony myth of, of the, that, that myth of Harvey Dent's goodness, was that a good idea? Was, was that a good idea for Gotham? So I don't know. I, I, I find yeah. like when I'm in that world and when I'm thinking through these ideas, I actually find them really fascinating to think about. It's really evocative. And I, I guess so just to kind of round all this out, you know, it's funny. We both kind of landed on, on this notion that our favorite Batman movies are, are strangely not not perfect at being Batman movies, but they seem to both use the Batman framework in a really interesting way, and it certainly helps that they're made by two really interesting directors who I, I think were both at the peak of their game as far as still being young enough to just pack things full of ideas, but also in control enough to maybe pack them with more, with, with more coherence than they did earlier. Um, I'm not sure if we really landed on, on, on any notion of what makes the perfect Batman movie. Like... I guess to me, like, Batman Begins is maybe the closest that any movie has come to the comic books that I grew up reading, but I'm not sure that's necessarily, like, the best thing. Um, I guess one way that I would end this, maybe, Jeff, is if you could pick a Batman and a Superman to fight on screen, who of the movie Batman (laughs) and Superman would they be? Dang. Um... And this is, let's let's assume all all time and space are open now. (laughs) Um, I would like to see, um, well, before I answer that question, to kind of respond to your concluding thought, I, I, I find myself, I think what our respective picks kind of tell us is that what's more important than anything is just a good movie. Yes. There is no such thing, I think, as a good Batman movie and a good Superman movie. To be honest with you... I, I don't mean this as an insult to the question, but I'm actually not even interested in that question. Like I think that in terms of these movies, what I'm most interested in is Wait, are they are they good? Are 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 they good movies? And I actually think that when I think reflect on Superman, um I I honestly kind of wonder if really we've outgrown Superman as a culture. Ooh, really? that's interesting. I mean, I understand that he endures and he and, and, and people like him. Um, and he's kind of passed into this sort of classical sphere of this, this realm of classical enduring character. Um, but I, I think that I, I understand his value and I understand why people love him. But at the same time, I also think that... Uh, uh, I've outgrown him mm-hmm. and like I'm interested in superheroes as a genre but I'm interested in more modern articulations of superheroes um, I see Superman as a construction of a different era different generation um, and I think that he that I, I don't necessarily connect to him you know bombshell dropped right. in minute 115 <laughs> of, of, of this podcast so, so um, I mean and I think Bat, Bat, Batman let me just say strong disagree but uh, go right. ahead <laughs> I, I think Batman has more resonance now um, because of just what he always kind of represents is sort of like vigilante justice the tragedy created character um, a lot of moral ambiguity in him, um, ends justifying the means kinds of things. Um, I think that he's a character then that speaks to 
our time and how we deal with our own injustices and our own catastrophes. And he kind of comments on our own morality. So I, I think he's a more relevant character, but I find that both of them are, you know, Batman at the same time is beholden to a whole sort of like pulp era of heroism that that I, I struggle with as uh, whether or not that should be a trope that should endure. We'll see. I mean, my own personal sense is, and some of this comes from uh, the re- reading uh, Super Gods, which I know we've referenced in every episode, but that's the Grant Morrison book that's great. And he, he talks a lot in that book about this idea of, of the cycles and of how certain takes on material kind of shift. And, you know, I just... I, I look at Deadpool and I look at Guardians of the Galaxy, which are two very different movies. And you, 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 I'm not quite saying that Superman would make sense in that kind of framework, but I do feel as if Batman v Superman will rise and fall off the idea that what people really feel, having seen three Dark Knight movies, is not dark enough yet. And I wonder if, after we see this movie, if there may be someone who's kind of like, you know, I think I'm ready for not necessarily something that's more optimistic, but maybe something that doesn't assume that, um, you know, we've just now realized that there are issues and that, whoa, what would happen if superheroes dealt with those issues? And I, I don't know. Yeah. There, there seems to, there's an angle on Superman that it, I, I think... I'm, I'm not sure we've evolved past him. Um, but, uh, you know, Zack Snyder, I think, seems to think so. And that's why we have this very Nolan-esque, Miller-esque take on a character who has never done that way before. So we'll I, think, I, I think as long as Superman remains completely defined as first responder, savior, God surrogate, um, <laughs> we, that then uh, that he, he will struggle for relevancy. Mm-hmm. And he um, and 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 he will become. He will always struggle for relevancy. He, he needs to be slight in in a way that doesn't subvert him and what he stands for he, uh, in terms of his character. That kind of like aspirational, that want to be good, to pursue the good for the good's sake. Um, but, like, but 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 is recast imagine? around something more human. I I like what I was saying, like exploration or discovery or whatever. I I, I think that we. I think that. I think that there is a popular body of thought that says that Superman doesn't have a relevancy problem, that Superman just needs to be taken seriously by the people and st- by his storytellers, and that storytellers have to stop apologizing for him and stop trying to make him relevant, and that if we just kind of double down on who he is, right. that, that then everything that, that is awesome about him will shine through. And I think that's correct to a degree. Um, I think that... Um, without, I think that doubling down on his uh, buying into his character and what he stands for um, is is correct. But I think the kinds of stories that we tell with them are hurting for relevancy and do need to be rethought. Let me hit you with this though, Jeff. Let's end on something that will never happen, which is where I always like to end. What if in a movie? You had Christopher Reeve's Superman, who we've both been rhapsodizing about for a while here. What if you had him and Christian Bale's Batman, uh-huh. and, and you had those two specific kinds of the archetype battling? Think about how there are two guys who both, you know, accomplish great things, and you know the framework with which they would approach each other. You know, 
Christopher Reeve would make Christian Bale seem quite cynical and and would make that worldview not so much seem realistic as he would he would bring out the sort of crypto conservatism in the uh, Christian Bale framework, whereas in turn the you know whatever we love about Superman as played by Christopher Reeve would seem, you know, privileged and, and oddly sort of, you know, like almost kind of weirdly like gentrified in a way. Like, you know, the, the, the fact that Superman comes from, you know, Metropolis, which is always kind of like New York on, on the brightest, most wonderful day in the world. And Batman comes from Gotham, which is always the grossest corner of New York, you know, and, and the fact that even in a way, you know, you think of it as like, almost can think of it as a kind of, you know, political thing, you know, one of the big pitches that Hillary has for her campaign, this is not going to get political in, in any way except to say that her big pitch is basically, I know how to get things done, and, you know, however much we might agree with my opponent, you need to be able to get things done. This is a very kind of like Batman thing in a way, whereas Superman is more kind of like, we need to aspire to something better. You know, maybe maybe I'm not as realistic in what I what I can accomplish on a on a nitty gritty level, but what I hope to accomplish and what I stand for is more idealistic. And I I don't know. I think if you had those two characters facing off, that would be something really interesting where they both seem very compelling and modern. We don't have that necessarily in Batman right. v Superman. Although it's interesting if it comes down to Hillary versus Trump, it's going to be like a pragmatism that that is that is uh, and real politic that is 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 acceptable and is savvy uh, versus a pragmatism and real politic that is just brutal and barbaric and utterly wrong, i.e., typified by Donald Trump. Yeah, you're saying Trump is a Lex Luthor, basically. <laughs> basically, yeah. it's like I would say that uh, Hillary Clinton in this scenario would be um, the cunning. Superman from Superman 2 that tricks her opponent tricks his opponents into giving up their power versus uh uh Bane. <laughs> Donald Trump's Bane or I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think it's a good point to end on. Uh, we'll be talking all about Batman Superman once we see it. Be sure to grab both collectible covers of Entertainment Weekly with Batman and Superman on the cover. Jeff next week I'm excited because we'll be talking about Cloverfield. Mm. All the Cloverfields. All the Cloverfields. All, all two of them, I guess. <laughs> all two of them, yes. Um, Jeff, always a pleasure. You too.